Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. There were four guys on a private plane. Okay, there was a pilot, nuclear scientist, a pastor, and a Boy Scout. And you're wondering, where in the world is this going to go? Okay, the plane's engines shut down and the plane began to plummet. So the pilot announced to the other three guys, he said, I'm sorry to inform you, fellas, but we only got three parachutes for the four of us. And with that, he grabbed one of the parachutes and he jumped out of the plane. Well, the nuclear scientist, he looked at the others and he said, you know, I'm one of the smartest men on earth. The world really needs me. And with that, he grabbed a parachute and jumped out of the plane. Well, the pastor turned to the Boy Scout and he said, Son, I know that I'm going to spend eternity with God, so you go ahead and take the last parachute. And the Boy Scout looked at the pastor and he said, Pastor, that's okay. He said, There's actually two parachutes left. See, the smartest man on earth, he just grabbed my backpack. (laughs) Yeah, you could laugh if you'd like. There's a moral behind this story. Okay, when we're in a crisis like a pandemic mixed with a financial collapse, it's important to grab onto the real thing, the thing that can save us. Because if we grab onto the wrong thing, it can prove to be disastrous. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul told a group of Christ followers living in the ancient city of Colossae. If you've got a Bible nearby, grab hold of it and turn to Colossians 2. If you don't have a Bible at hand, let me encourage you to push pause on the live stream. Go get yourself a Bible and pick up your electronic device, your phone, your pad, and uh, go to the outline that we provide as well. Someone said to me, they uh, wrote to me this past week, and they said, you know, it's so much easier to follow your sermon online when I got an outline in front of me. Uh, Exactly. That's why we provide it. So go ahead and grab that now, if you would. We are in the final week of a five-part Lenten series called Christ Above All. Uh, This series has been intended to bring us into Holy Week, which is this coming week, Good Friday and Easter. We're going to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Not even a crisis is going to keep us from celebrating that. You know, Jesus is someone you, you, you want to know during the good times, but he's also someone you want to be sure you're holding on to. You're holding on to when the bad times come. Now, interestingly, the Colossians faced the threat of bad times. They, they lived under the constant cloud of a potential disaster. Historians tell us that their part of the the world, the ancient world, was constantly threatened by earthquakes. One one historian says that Colossae was kind of the Southern California of the ancient world. Okay, so if you lived in Colossae, you you experienced constant small to mid-sized tremors, and everybody was waiting for the big one. Well, the big one eventually came. See, Paul is writing this New Testament epistle of Colossians in AD 61. In AD 62, an earthquake destroyed the city. And the ancient city of of Colossae is never mentioned again in history. So Paul is writing Christ followers whose world is about to be rocked. Now, Paul doesn't know that, of course, but he does know how important it is to have an eternally secure relationship with with Jesus. 
And Paul has heard that there's a, there's a heresy, there's some bad theology circulating around the church in Colossae. And this heresy was undermining the importance, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the lives of these believers. And as a result, the Colossians were being tempted to grab onto the wrong thing. They were being tempted to grab onto the, the, the Boy Scouts backpack, if you would, when they should have been grabbing onto Christ. Friends, this this current crisis is revealing whether we're really clinging to Jesus or we're clinging to some substitute that can't help us. You know, the Apostle Paul warns us in today's text about three dangerous substitutes. Here's number one, if you're filling in that outline as we go. Number one, the danger of religious rules and traditions. The danger of religious rules and traditions. We're picking up the text today in Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. The people in Colossae who were propagating the heresy, the bad theology, they probably came from a Jewish background because they were emphasizing two Old Testament practices that they believed were critical for a person's spirituality. What were those two practices? A kosher diet and special days. A kosher diet and special days. Let's start with a kosher diet. Uh, Look again at the opening line of verse 16, Colossians 2. Paul warns the Colossians, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. By what you eat or drink. Now, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 11, there's a, a whole list of foods, some of which are called clean because they're acceptable for believers to eat, and others are called unclean because they were not acceptable for true believers. So what was the purpose of these dietary rules? Well, some Bible scholars say, well, it you know, probably had something to do with the fact that God was protecting these Old Testament believers from eating bad stuff. I mean, remember back in their day, nobody understood the difference between healthy food and unhealthy food. Okay, the, the problem with this explanation is that if you look at the list, you'll see that there's even some healthy food on the do not eat unhealthy or unclean rather list. So this can't be the explanation. It's not just that God is protecting people by putting all the unhealthy stuff on a do not eat list. Here's a better explanation for the kosher diet. Food was an identity marker for these Old Testament believers. It was an identity marker. It was a way for them to remind themselves every time they sat down to a meal and had to to decide what to eat and what not to eat, that they belonged to God, that they had surrendered their lives to him. Now, did the Colossian Christ followers, did they need a kosher diet to, to remind themselves every day that they belonged to Jesus? No. Why not? Well, because when they surrendered their lives to Christ, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of them. If you're a Christ follower today, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He is your identity marker, if you would. He's constantly making his presence known. 
I mean, you, you can sense the Holy Spirit prompting you to confess sin, right? You can sense the Holy Spirit giving you an understanding of the Bible when you read it and helping you apply it to your life. You can sense the, the, the Holy Spirit gifting you with certain abilities so that you could serve others. You can sense the Holy Spirit helping you to make God-honoring decisions. You can sense the Holy Spirit you know, giving you wisdom every day as you try to weather a crisis. You know, Jesus has given you something much better than a kosher diet as an identity marker. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the Holy Spirit. Now, the other thing that these heretics in Colossae were pushing as a substitute for Jesus was special days. Go back to verse 16. Paul warns the, the Colossians about the danger of religious festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath days. You see that? Now, the Old Testament describes all sorts of special days during the course of the year when God's people got together and they celebrated all the wonderful things that God had done in their lives. You know, nothing wrong with this sort of a tradition, is there? I mean, don't, don't Christ followers today celebrate religious holidays? Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. Uh, we even go to church every weekend for the sake of orienting our lives around God. So does Paul have a problem with that? Well, no. Let, let me tell you what Paul has a problem with when it comes to special days. Two things. First, for, for many people, even those who consider themselves to be Christians, religious traditions or days of special celebration are sometimes nothing more than mindless rituals. Nothing more than mindless rituals. Now, I've told you the story before. You know, back before we started Christ Community Church, uh, we were doing all the preparatory work, and a religion reporter for a local newspaper got wind of the fact that we were about to start a non traditional church. You know, a church whose services would meet in a movie theater. That's where we initially gathered. And they would include a live band and visual media. There would be a sermon directed at everyday life, Monday through Saturday. And so he called me up and asked for an interview. This was newsworthy. You know, no one was doing anything like this at the time. And so we got together over coffee. And I'll never forget at the end of the interview, he said, I got one last question. I said, shoot. He said, do you, do you think people will really go for this? Do you think anybody will be interested in a non-traditional service like the one you're about to start? And I decided to answer his question with a question. So I looked at him and I said, well, let, let me ask you this. Do you go to church? And he, he turned a little shade of red because, after all, he's a religion reporter. And now he's about to admit to me, no, I don't go to church. And so I asked him, well, tell me why not? And he said, and this is the analogy I'll never forget, he said, going to church for me became like watching an I Love Lucy rerun. He said, I, I always knew what was going to happen next, so I was just going through the motions until I decided to stop going entirely. You know, it's possible even at a church like Christ Community Church, you could be going through the motions. You could be joining us for our weekend services, even online. You could be enjoying once a year a Christmas Eve celebration or a, a, a big Easter service. And it could be nothing more for you than just ritualistic going through the motions, conformity 
to special days and traditions, if you would. You've got church, but you don't have Christ. Is Christ central to your life? Is Jesus central to your life? Which brings me to Paul's second problem with special days. The Old Testament festival days were accompanied by lavish sacrifices that were offered to God. Now, these sacrifices atoned for the sins of the people, and they pointed to the coming of a Savior. They pointed to a Savior who would eventually offer the ultimate sacrifice, his own life. We're talking, of course, about Jesus. Paul wanted the Colossians to know that if they had Jesus, they didn't have to be offering other sacrifices on special days. Go back to verse 17 and look at what Paul said about these former special days with all their sacrifices. Verse 17, he says, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, when Paul uses the word shadow in this verse, uh, he, he may have in mind a famous analogy first used by the philosopher, the Greek philosopher Plato. Okay, that's Plato with a T, not Play-Doh as in what your kids are playing with right now at the kitchen table while you're watching the sermon. Okay, Plato, a Greek philosopher around 400 BC, he told this story. He told a story about a dude who is chained in a cave and he is looking at the wall of the cave, but behind him there's a fire. And every once in a while, a person passes between the fire and the back of this dude. He can't see them, but he sees their shadow on the wall. And he thinks, you remember this analogy, maybe from your Western civilizations, a course that you took years and years ago in high school? He got to thinking that those shadows were the reality. See, he was unfamiliar with real people, so he saw the shadows as reality. He was into shadows, not into real people. Back to Colossians 2, Paul is warning us about the danger of religious rules and traditions. He's warning us because they can convince us that we've got the real thing when all we've got are shadows. Paul is telling us to let go of the shadows and grab hold of Christ. You know, in the early days of Christ's community church, I used to think that there were two categories of people who attended our services. You know, there were seekers, or as we call them today, explorers. You know, people who were kind of kicking the tires, not yet surrendered to Christ, but checking things out. And, and then on the other hand, there were Christ followers. People who were sold out. They were all in to following Jesus. I, I've since come to realize there are not two categories of people who attend Christ Community Church. There are three categories of people. There are explorers, and there are Christ followers, and there are a lot of people in between, third category, who think they're Christ followers, but Jesus is not really central to their lives. They've never truly surrendered to him. They're clinging to shadows. They're clinging to shadows. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to start pursuing Jesus. Start pursuing the real thing today. Number two, the danger of spiritual experiences. Go back to Colossians 2. We're going to pick it up at verse 18. Paul says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels. We're going to come back to that. The worship of angels. Don't let those people disqualify you. 
Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Okay, the heretics in Colossae were really into angels. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. They believed that angels had the power to protect you from bad things. Okay, angels could destroy your enemies. Angels could uh, rescue you from a curse or a hex if somebody would put that on you. And on the positive side, angels could grant you health and business success and harmonious relationships. And best of all, angels could provide you with indirect, indirect access to God. See, it's not a good thing to approach a a holy, a terrifying God directly. Much better to go through angel intermediaries. Well, Paul believed in angels. You know, Paul believed, as the writer of Hebrews 1 verse 14 puts it, that God sends angels to serve Christ followers in times of significant need. But Paul didn't boast. He didn't brag about a lot of direct contact with angels. Now, the heretics in Colossae, on the other hand, they love to talk about their angel visitations and their, 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 their heavenly visions, their supernatural encounters. Verse 18 says you know, that they went into great detail about what they had seen. Of course, they would describe these things with very pious, very humble-sounding words. But Paul accuses them, middle of verse 18, of false humility, false humility. Later on in verse 18, Paul says that they're actually puffed up. They're not humble. They're prideful about their spiritual experiences. They were looking down their noses at the Colossian Christ followers who hadn't had the same experiences. And an even bigger problem than the pride of these heretics, look again at the opening line of verse 19, is that they've lost connection, Paul says, with the head. Now who's the head? Paul is referring to Jesus. Listen, friends, we need to beware of the danger of substituting spiritual, spine-tingling experiences for a vital, daily relationship with Jesus. You get it? Got it? Good. We need to beware of the danger of substituting spiritual, spine-tingling experiences for a vital, daily relationship with Jesus. The danger of spiritual experiences. Now, this is Palm Sunday weekend. You probably recall what happened the original Palm Sunday. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And as he came to the town, the city of Jerusalem, a huge crowd gathered. It turned into a royal parade and people were shouting, Hosanna and praise God. And they they were throwing their garments on the ground so that Jesus could ride over them on his donkey. He was more celebrative than a ticker tape parade after a Super Bowl victory. But that was on Sunday. By Friday, you see, the the spiritual high had fizzled out. By Friday, Jesus had been left hanging on a cross. We still have that same bent for short-lived spiritual experiences. 
Maybe it's not an encounter with an angel as in ancient Colossae. Maybe it's not a religious parade as at the beginning of Holy Week in ancient Jerusalem. Maybe our spiritual euphoria is tied to a miraculous healing because of a prayer. Maybe it's tied to a life-changing experience at SBR summer camp. Maybe it's a new worship song that moves our emotions every time we hear it and so we listen to it again and again. Maybe it's a hike in the Rocky Mountains where where, where you encounter the splendor, the majesty of God's creation. Maybe it's something as simple as a good book or a podcast by your favorite Christian communicator that you're now recommending to everybody else. This is incredible. You got to listen. It's awesome. Nothing wrong with enjoying these experiences, spiritual experiences, but we can't live on them. And we shouldn't pursue them in place of an everyday Bible-fed, prayer-engaged relationship with Christ. Now, not long after I fully surrendered my life to Jesus in college, I decided to go home for a weekend. I was dating Sue at the time, and so uh, Sue joined me. And I was trying to grab hold of uh, anything I could that would get me closer to God at the time. And I heard that there was a new church in town. And people described it as a a Pentecostal, spirit-filled, dance-in-the-aisles kind of church. And I thought, i got to check this out. And so Sue and I walked up to this church. It was about a mile away from my home, so we didn't bother to drive. We just walked, and there were maybe 40 or 50 people gathered. It was an old warehouse, a converted warehouse. And the the pastor gave one of these barn-burning sermons. It was all about getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if we got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he told us, then we would speak in tongues and there would be all sorts of spiritual pyrotechnics happening. And then he closed in prayer and he said, if this is what we wanted, if we wanted this experience, all we needed to do was raise a hand and he'd pray for us and we'd get it. And he kept repeating that you know, uh, statement, that invitation, raise your hand, just raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. So finally, I took a peek and I looked around and I, you know, nobody had their hand raised. And that's when it dawned on me, all these other people, they were regulars. They probably had the experience already. We were the outsiders, the guests. He was gunning for us. So I whispered to Sue, I said, let's get out of here. And we slipped out the back door. I don't think we stopped running for a couple of blocks. Now, now listen, I have friends who've had very moving experiences with the Holy Spirit. I have friends who speak in tongues. It's the spiritual gift they've been given. So this is not what I'm dissing. My point is, and Paul's point in Colossians, is that these spiritual experiences must not become the things we pursue. It's not going to be spiritual experience for experience sake. What we're looking for is a deeper relationship with with Jesus. We're looking to sink our roots into his word. We're looking to connect with him on a regular basis. You know, this shelter at home provides an ideal opportunity for us to do that, for us to spend more time in God's word, for for some of us maybe the first time in God's word, to spend time in prayer, to get to know Jesus better. You know, this isn't a time for more Netflix. This is a time for more Jesus. The danger of spiritual experiences. Number three, the danger of personal disciplines. 
Let's go back to Colossians 2 and pick up where we left off. We left off at verse 20. He says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay, the heretics in Colossae were promoting certain rules. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Where'd they get these rules? Uh, Most Bible scholars point, once again, to a heavy Jewish influence behind this heresy. See, in the Old Testament, uh, specifically in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, there are certain laws that forbid God's people from touching, from touching anything that was considered unclean. Now, the goal of these laws was to remind God's people to stay away from sinful behaviors in general. So here's how it worked. I mean, if you, if you kept the don't touch laws on a regular basis, if you were constantly saying no, 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 you would become a more disciplined person. You would be exercising your no muscle. You would develop the ability then to say no to the wrong things and to say yes to the right things. Uh, many of us still employ personal disciplines in a similar way. Uh, we practice, for example, exercise disciplines. We say no to being uh, couch potatoes, to uh, vegging out, and instead we keep our bodies healthy and energized. Or we practice financial disciplines. We keep a budget, so we say no to overspending, spending on the wrong things. We even practice character-boosting disciplines to strengthen our resistance to certain temptations. For example, if you have a problem with alcohol, maybe you say no to alcohol. You keep it out of your house entirely. It's just not on a shelf in your your cabinet. Or you try to avoid a person at work uh, to whom you feel a special attraction. You say no to extended conversations with this individual. Or you're trying to say no to cuss words, so you put $5 in a cuss jar every time one of those words slips out of your mouth. Or you put a filter on your electronic devices so that you could say no to porn. And now you, your search history is being sent on a regular basis to an accountability partner, maybe, uh, maybe your spouse, maybe a good friend. So is, is Paul now dissing those kind of personal disciplines? Is he saying that they're a waste of our time and effort? No, not at all. But these disciplines do have a couple of weaknesses that Paul describes in the next two verses of Colossians 2. Look at verse 22. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. They are all destined to perish. Okay, here's the first weakness of, spiritual, uh, of personal disciplines. Uh, not only the disciplines that Paul is addressing in Colossae, but the disciplines, the personal disciplines that we practice. He says they're all destined to perish with use. All destined to perish with use. In other words, they only have a short-term effectiveness, a brief shelf life. They don't address deeper, broader, more ultimate issues in our lives. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. When Sue and I first got married, we moved to a suburb of Boston where I got a job working for a church. 
I was on staff of this church and I got mono. In fact, I spent a month in bed with mono. And one day, a friend of mine on the staff, a dude named Tom, he dropped by. Tom was a health food nut. And so he brought with him a stack of health food magazines, which he wanted me to read and put into practice. Okay, and then he left. He left my apartment. And this is a humorous part of the story that I recall. As he left, he passed the pizza guy who was coming with our dinner order. Okay, so that evening, after my pizza, I opened up one of the magazines, and on the inside corner, it was a tribute to the former editor of the magazine who had just died. And I immediately thought, yeah, this is probably some guy who lived to like, what, 110 years because he ate all the the healthy food, so he lived to a ripe old age. But I soon discovered this editor had died in his mid-30s. He'd been out riding a bicycle. He was not only a health food nut, he was an exercise nut. And he'd gotten hit by a car. So his personal disciplines were great, but they couldn't ensure a long and safe and prosperous life. See, whatever our personal disciplines, if we're not cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus, then we're missing out on the purpose-filled life that Jesus promises us right now, and we're missing out on the eternal life that Jesus promises us in the world to come. Our our personal disciplines can narrow our focus onto, onto specific issues so much that we miss the bigger picture of what God is up to in our lives. You know, we we can be so into the disciplines of raising a green lawn, the disciplines of personal exercise, the discipline of practicing the piano. One discipline after that we miss out on the bigger picture of a relationship with God. What does God want to do in your life? The, The second weakness of personal disciplines is found in the closing verse of today's scripture text, Colossians 2, verse 23. Paul says, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but, now listen to this, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Indulgence. Paul is telling us that personal disciplines lack power in and of themselves. Let me illustrate this point by noting the 12 step program of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, many of you are familiar with this. If you've not gone through it yourself, a friend, a loved one has gone through it. And AA uh, does a great job of acquainting people with some basic disciplines that will help them resist alcohol and say yes to the right behaviors. And so, for example, uh, people are encouraged to attend regular AA meetings. In fact, if you're new to the system, uh, you know, the watchword is 90 meetings in 90 days. They'll encourage you to get yourself a mentor who will check up on you with regularity. They'll encourage you to right all wrongs, to seek forgiveness of any people that you've offended. So all of these steps, you're encouraged to take these disciplines, if you would. But where do you get the power to put these into practice? If you know anything about AA, you know the most famous step of all. It's that you need to discover a higher power, right? You need a higher power in your life who will enable you to put these things into practice. Well, the Christian life, similarly, is a journey of of moral reformation. I mean, when, when we get to Colossians chapter 3... 
which is where we're headed the weekend after Easter. The the Apostle Paul is very explicit about the bad behaviors we now need to get rid of if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus and the good behaviors that we've got to cultivate. But where does the motivation, where, where does the power come from to make these changes? The motivation comes from a desire to please Jesus, our new Savior and King, best friend. And the power, you know, the power comes from Jesus himself if, if we're nurturing our relationship with him through daily time spent in God's word and prayer. Jesus himself says in John chapter 15 that he's like a vine, a grapevine, and we're the branches. And if we want our lives to be fruitful, we need to remain in him, spend time with him. You know, is this what we're doing during our present crisis? You know, religious rules and traditions can't help us when what we need is Jesus. Spiritual experiences can't help us when what we need is Jesus. Personal disciplines can't help us when what we need is Jesus. Now, if you're a Christ follower, you already know this. My challenge to you is during this shelter in place, during this crisis, let your roots go deeper into Christ. You know, spend time in his word. Pick up one of those Bible-savvy reading schedules. Spend more time than you ever have before in prayer. Spend time listening to worship music. Get close to Christ. And you probably have friends who don't know Christ in this personal way. Share Jesus with them. Don't forget that Paul wrote the, the epistle of Colossians to people he'd never met before. But he was writing to them to say, hey, in your approaching crisis... Don't grab hold of the wrong thing. There's only one thing you want to grab hold of, and that's Christ. Let me encourage you to speak to friends, loved ones, who you can tell to tune in to the Easter service coming up this next weekend, where they'll find Christ. They'll hear the good news about Jesus. Pray for people. Connect with people. People who need Christ. Let me close in prayer right now. And as we close in prayer... I'm going to invite you, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, to pray the surrender prayer. Around Christ's community, we say there are three basic words to this prayer. The first word is the word sorry. You pray from your heart, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry that I've walked away from you, that I've done my thing instead of your thing, that all the do's in the Bible I've not been doing and the don'ts, those are the things I've been doing. And so I want to tell you, I'm sorry for my sin, and I I need your forgiveness. So the first word is sorry. The second word, pray this from your heart. The second word is thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to planet Earth and laying down your life on the cross for me, for taking the penalty that my sins deserve. So it's sorry and thanks. And the last word is please. Please come into my life. Please become my central focus. Please teach me what it means to follow you as the Savior and the King of my life. Please help me to push roots down into your word. You know, please become my everything, I pray in your name. And Lord Jesus, I pray for brothers and sisters who've already prayed this surrender prayer, that this shelter in place time would become a time of a deepening relationship with Christ. We pray in his name. And everybody said, Amen.